You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Flashes it away through the covers for four, and England have won the match. Hello, welcome to the analyst inside cricket. It's one sleep to the ashes, or in the case of Steve Smith, no sleeps. If you read the Sunday Times on Sunday, uh, my article about the ashes and Steve Smith against Stuart Broad and Steve Smith actually saying that he lies awake at night thinking about Stuart Broad running into bowl and where the field is set and where he's going to score his runs. And actually, brilliantly, uh, one of my Twitter followers, Sean Paul Sartre, great name, actually concocted a, an Instagram-style photograph, a sort of cartoon of Steve Smith lying awake and thinking of Broad flying in through the windows, dressed as a sort of ghost with his headband and everything. It's a brilliant image which I've posted on the Analyst Pod Twitter feed, at the Analyst Pod. And we're going to use that Twitter feed during the Ashes this summer because we have a special prize at the end of every Test match given by Chapel Down Sparkling English Wine, who are one of the England sponsors, and they are going to give a magnum of their sparkling wine to the winner of our little competition, which is to choose the sparkling moment of each test. So we'll remind you about that on every day of this test match. On every day of the test series, we're going to be posting a review of the day's play and an opportunity for you to nominate the sparkling moment of the match. So look out for that on the Analyst Pod Twitter feed. Simon, one sleep to the ashes. What are you thinking? I'm really excited. I mean, it's, it's that sort of tantalising feeling, isn't it, of a, a, a series that is unpredictable. We've, we've talked about it a little bit already, and we've been building up to it for goodness knows how long. We always do, don't we, with, with an Ashes series. Yeah, can't, can't wait. I think I'll sleep a bit more than Steve Smith and uh, perhaps some of the other... Uh, Junior Ashes members, I don't know, Harry Brook approaching his first Ashes series, what he'll be sleeping like tonight. But yeah, can't wait. Really, really looking forward to it to see 
how the, the sort of clash of styles works out on what, what looks initially, Yoz, a good Edgbaston batting surface. I mean, there didn't seem to be much sort of green in that surface a couple of days out from the game. Anyway, well, let's, let's judge when we actually see the pitch at 10.30 tomorrow when the two captains are, are tossing up. It looked like a desert, actually, on the, on, the, on the pictures I've seen. It looks incredibly dry. The surface, the outfield looks as, as green as a meadow, but the pitch, I think, is going to be very dry. We're going to hear, by the way, from both Justin Langer and Matthew Hayden in this podcast, looking ahead to the series, the great opening pair of that triumphant Australian side of the 2000s, uh, both of them talking about each other and also the Ashes in general. Why is the Ashes important? Why is it so important? Well, I'm just going to read you a a short passage from my book, Cricket's Greatest Rivalry, uh, looking back at the whole history of the Ashes. And obviously it's been a continuum since 1882. This is, I think, the 74th Ashes series. And there's been an Ashes series every two years, except during the two world wars. So it's been going for 140 years. Why is it so important? I mean, it's obviously the, the Ashes urn, actually, is a symbol of, of how important it is. It's that sort of mysterious thing. Nobody knows what's in it. It's the sort of holy grail of sport. But also, England against Australia sort of transcends sport in a way, doesn't it? It's old world against new Northern Hemisphere against Southern Hemisphere, conquerors against conquered. Australia, of course, claimed by Captain James Cook in 1770. And, you know, at a more basic level, it's also about intransigent fathers against impudent sons. The majority of Australians, 55%, are British descendants. And so, really, it's an age-old family feud as well, been running for over 140 years. And... It just always kind of lights everybody up, doesn't it? It seems to get everybody going. Yeah, also perhaps a, a sort of clash of styles as well, I don't know, a clash of approaches to, to sport. I, you know, I mean, you can, you can talk about sort of the class system and go back in the day. You know, that Australia's a bit more upstart. That sort of view of England being a bit stuffy. Uh, and, you know, and I think that's what makes this series really fascinating because, of course, England, uh, England have got that sort of upstart. Um, sort of attitude to the game now, haven't they? They're trying to do something completely different, whereas Australia have sort of a far more sort of traditional approach to Test match cricket, which is you know worked for them. They're World Test champions. There's a sort of relentlessness about Australia's cricket. You know, you think of Steve Smith and Marnus Labuschagne. You think of their bowlers. You know, the way they you know Scott Boland you know typifies that. Whereas for England, I mean, it's so unpredictable. What what's going to happen? I mean, some you think somewhere along the line in this series, England are going to fall in a heap. I mean, it, it, and that's what Australia are expecting, I think, somewhere. And of course, it has happened under uh, Brendan McCullum. England haven't lost very often, but they did do so at Lords against South Africa when they were dismissed for 165 and 149. And that was when they came up against Rabada and Gidi, Nokia and Janssen. You know, four-pronged pace attack, you know, with some venom, uh, some attitude. And that's what Australia have got in their bowling lineup. So that's that's sort of what Australia will be looking at, I think, in the next uh, five weeks, that their bowlers will do the job that England won't be able to baseball them. Uh, England, well, I mean, they, they're obviously committed to the way they're going to play and they, you know, they will not be holding back. Uh, but we'll discuss that a bit more as this podcast goes on. Yeah, and, and in a way, what England have done is sort of borrowed from the Australian approach of that 1990s to 2000 mm. team, led off very much by Matthew Hayden 
and Justin Langer, who are by by stats, you know, the most successful opening partnership of all time in Test cricket. They haven't scored the most runs as a partnership. That actually record is held by Gordon Greenwich and Desmond Haynes. They scored six thousand four hundred together, but they only averaged forty seven in their partnership. Whereas Hayden and Langer averaged fifty one. They scored five thousand five hundred runs, so slightly less than. Greenwich and Haynes, but their average was higher, 51. So they're the only pair who scored 5,000 runs or more together and average over 50 per partnership. And they did it in their own very distinctive ways. I suppose, in a way, I always thought of Matthew Hayden as the sort of incredible Hulk, the guy who almost invented intimidatory batting. And so I first asked Justin Langer what it was like to bat with him. It was like batting with Russell Crowe, the gladiator. You know, in Russell, in Gladiator, Russell Crowe, before he go out to fight, he'd bend down and he'd pick up the dirt, he'd rub it on his hands, and then he'd go and he'd, he'd take on the, you know, take on the world. Well, Hados used to get down, rub his hand on the grass, rub them together, go, right, let's go. Like, what a knob. Seriously, he thought, he, he honestly thought he was the gladiator. And he was so different to me. He's about six foot five. I'm about five foot five. And... He was just so, mate, he just had this presence and he honestly was like walking out back with a giant. There would be times when Matty Hayden, we'd play Pakistan, right? And without doubt, the fastest bowler in the world in our time was Shobakta. No question. So Haydos, you'd walk, and I always took the first ball. So I'd always say I was the tough one, he was the soft one. I always took the first ball. We would walk out, play Pakistan, and Haydos would walk straight to Shobakta. And he'd be going, mate, blah, 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 blah. And whatever he'd say to show to get him angry. And I'd go, hey, what are you doing? I've got to face him, mate. Like, he's going, no, no, you know what it's like. We get him angry and he bowls rubbish. He gets loose. So Haydos would be just, blah, 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 at show back to And he's getting, trying to bowl him faster and faster. But Haydos did not care, mate. He just, he had this presence and he had this, he had good strategy. And he'd just wind him up. He'd wind up the ball. He'd wind up the opposition. And then... You know, we had very different styles. He'd be standing there banging them straight back down the ground. I'd be hitting them behind point, behind square leg. So I think because of that, that made us hard to bowl to as a partnership. But we enjoyed each other's company. We never talked serious out in the middle. We never talked cricket out in the middle. It was always just, we're pretty chilled. And, uh, and then we went about our business when they started bowling to us. Is that true? Yeah, what I heard there is a bloke with a massive inf- inferiority complex and a comp- and me being a complete idiot. The combination <laughs> seemed to somehow work. <laughs> but uh, yeah, look, Alfie, Alfie was a great little warrior himself, though. He um, yeah, he he did it he did it differently. But uh, I'll never forget considering that we were at the Oval, you know, just a few days ago, and the very first time he got picked when Michael Slater was dropped. And we're walking down the stairs and big Andy Caddick was flying into him and and he had this this uh this fake tooth from where he must have got you know hit in the mouth at some point, like we all have. And it used to when he got angry, it used to like click in and out of his head, sort of fall out. It was a you know, like a wasn't a proper uh uh cap or whatever. It was must have been a plate at the time, temporary plate. And he was turning around to me and he said, you wouldn't be dead for quids, would you, Dustus? You wouldn't be dead. He used to call me Dustus. You wouldn't be dead for quids. How good's this? How bloody good is this? You know, he, he also didn't have a lot of fear, JL. He, 
he may be small in status, but I tell you what, he's he's like a little British bulldog. He once he sort of got riled riled up and the teeth clenched, there wasn't a lot of room to move. And the harder you seem to fight, the more he seemed to clinch down. Martial arts is is his thing, isn't it? Yeah, and he's he's got this um, pseudo cross, which is kind of like the baggy green um, of one of the martial arts codes. But you see him if ever you see a little someone wearing a little gold cross it's in a square and it's got like a star in the middle of it run because <laughs> there's nothing good that's going to come out of a confrontation with that who would win in a fight between you two then uh he'd probably win yeah i wouldn't tell him that but he probably would win because he's skilled you know me i'd wrestle him to the ground and i would never give up but he's probably more skillful than me which makes him dangerous they were certainly an impressive pair together. And I think if we look back to that 2005 series, and a lot of people saying that you know there are parallels between 2005 and this series in terms of its expectation, what happened was England hit those uh, opening pair of Hayden and Langer really hard at Lords with aggressive fast bowling, hit a, a few players on the head. Hayden was actually hit on the head. Langer was hit on the arm. Ponting was cut on his cheek. And in fact, you can still see, I worked with Ricky Ponting last week, and you can still see the, the cut mark, the little scar on his right cheekbone where Steve Harmison hit him in that first test at Lords. But it was normal service resumed for Australia once England had bowled Australia out for 190. Then England got bowled out for 140 by Glenn McGrath and lost the test match handsomely to, to Australia. So in a way... You know, all our kind of hopes were dashed as Englishmen in that series after that first test. But then it all changed when coming to Edgbaston, which of course is where we are tomorrow, Ricky Ponting decides to win the toss and field first, just after McGrath has stood on a ball and ricked his ankle and is out of the game. And this is how Matthew Hayden and his colleagues reacted to Ponting deciding to bowl first. I was actually having a piss with Warney and and Warney basically tore up the urinal. So he was like, really, what the F just happened? And look, to be honest, it was chaos, right? I mean, we had our side and then we didn't have a side. And so everyone, it, it got lost in, it was one of those moments that, it got the communication process got lost amongst each other. And, and I think our era was excellent at communicate, communicating, but certainly on that occasion, that was that strategically was a horrendous move. And maybe lucky it happened because would test cricket be the same if we didn't have that 2005 Ashes series? It's a little bit like how 2007 World Cup, T20 World Cup, if India hadn't won that, would we have T20 cricket? I don't reckon. So it kept the ashes alive. Again, it seems to find a way, doesn't it? But certainly there was zero communication. And I got asked this question the other day as well. I had no idea that, that he was going to do that. And as it turned out, it was horrendous. It's amazing that, isn't it, yours? That, that the players can be, you know, this, this, really, this great Australian side that won heavily at Lords could be so disappointed in what their 
captain had done at the toss. Because Shane Warne liked to bowl last because he, you know, he liked to bowl second and last because you get the the benefits of a, a wearing pitch. And he was a, you know he was pretty handy on a decent pitch, but on a on a wearing pitch, it, absolutely deadly. So he he liked that. You could understand that. It's, it's funny that they were so at odds uh, with each other, isn't it? You know, even before they went out onto the field, a team that were you know very confident and had been very successful. Yeah, I, I, in fact, I don't think all of them approved of the coaching setup. Uh, John Buchanan was the coach at the time, and Shane Warne wasn't his biggest fan. There was a bit, there were sort of a few factions in that team. Gilchrist and Warne didn't get on that well either, in fact. And, you know, there, I, th- I felt Warne was a bit of a sort of lone uh, wolf in a way in that team uh, towards the end. I don't think he and Ponting exactly saw eye to eye, and clearly. Not in in the case of this story. So maybe you could see the signs of that fantastic Australian team of that era sort of unravelling, partly because of sort of conflicting personalities. So does it feel a little bit like 2005 all over again? Does it feel like that to you? Is it that that, that same feeling? What, what did you think back in 2005? Because I mean, I remember going into that series, England had been successful and you know, they, they got a, a decent bowling attack. Uh, they... they had a great year, but and, and they'd won at Southampton that T20 match, which which seems irrelevant, doesn't it? Now you think, well, how can a T20 match make any difference? But it was the way they played, it was the aggression with which they played. The crowd got right behind them, uh, and Australia must have thought, oh, hold on, this is a bit different. You know, we're used to coming to England and winning uh, quite comfortably. But I, I mean, I don't think I, I still don't think I expected England to to win the series. You thought they might, you know, tweak the kangaroo's nose and pull its tail, but not to actually win. But you you remember that at the, at the time that you felt that England did have a chance. I did because I thought I felt they had a really strong bowling attack, and that 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 bowling attack had come together. Steve Harmison, Matthew Hoggard, an interesting con- contrasting opening pair, and then backed up by Flintoff, who was so consistent and had constantly got out the best players in opposition teams. Like he got Brian Lara out quite a couple of times. He got Jacques Callis out. You know, he was the guy that they used to sort of target the top players in the opposition. And then they had Simon Jones as a sort of X factor as well. And Ashley Giles, a very consistent spinner. So they really had a very good five-man attack. And the, the batting was was strong. Truscothic and Strauss in that uh, list of great opening partnerships that I mentioned earlier, they were they were up there. They weren't quite as as, as successful as the Hayden Langers and, and Greenwich and Haynes, but, you know, they were pretty successful. And then Vaughan at three. Peterson was an unknown quality uh, at four. But, mm. uh, you know, they had those top, top three were, were very good. So I, I felt England, and they had had seven test wins at, at home, you know, previously. They'd also beaten Australia very strongly in the semi-final of the Champions Trophy That's right, the year yeah. before at Edgebaston yeah. and, and really taken Australia on. And actually there was another match which I thought was very in- instrumental in that series or that year was that One Day International at Bristol, your hometown, where Peterson City. took the... City. Yeah, City, yeah. <laughs> well, home City, sorry. Where, where Peterson took uh, the Australian bowlers down in a One Day International for about 90 smashed them all over the place mm. and that was before he'd even played a test match so you know the, the signs were really good for England and I just remember actually just before that first test the day before the even maybe the morning of that first Lord's test seeing Justin Langer on the outfield you know sort of doing his martial arts 
warm-ups and sort of punching a, a fake kind of punch bag or something on the outfield, doing his dancing steps. And I just felt it felt like two, you know, heavyweight boxers about to meet head-on at Lords, and that's how it proved. Really, I, I just had a I had an inkling England were going to do it because. Mm. I just felt they were coming together really, really well. And, you know, it, it, they, you know, they had to fight tooth and nail to finally win that series, which is what made it all so compelling. Yeah, I suppose it was, for me, it was the history. It was you know, it, the fact that England just didn't beat Australia in Ashes series. They hadn't, you know, hadn't done so for so long. You just expect the same old, uh, same old. I think a, perhaps a slightly better parallel this time, although I think the clash of culture things and, you know, this... This sort of difference between the two sides is quite an important sort of, um, aspect uh, to this series. I think in terms of expectation, I think 2015 for me is a bit closer because I, I remember it, it looked like a good Australian side in 2015. And of course, England were able to, to, you know, to take them down and they won the first test in Cardiff. And OK, Australia chipped away and fought back, but England gradually uh, subdued them. So perhaps that is a, a better sort of parallel in terms of expectation uh, coming into the series. But, but, you know, both you and I have both tipped Australia uh, to win the series. Uh, but uh, me, you with a bit more um, surety than me. I'm, 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 I'm a bit sort of, I don't know, ambivalent, really. I, I don't... I, I'm a bit unsure about how this series is going to go. You can see you can see two different narratives developing. One is the Australia this sort of relentless approach would just wear England down. And England will succumb enough for Australia to win the series. Or the other one is if England do get some momentum behind them, uh, and that you know, I, I was thinking about a dream day for England uh, at Edgbaston and a dream day for Australia on the first day. That say, say they win the toss. I think both, it looks to me as if whoever wins the toss will bat first because it's been dry. I don't know if you, that's, that seems to be logical to me from a distance anyway. A dream day for England, I think, would be something like 400 for seven or eight. You know, the, the re- scoring quickly, a bit, a bit like 2005. Whereas for Australia, I think a dream day would be something like 290 for three or something like 300 for three a bit like the world test championship final and that would just quell everything wouldn't it you know australia win the toss they come out and they just make england's attack look pretty i, I don't know sort of pretty samey and uh, uh, lacking penetration whereas for england go out there play aggressively actually make you know basball for want of a better word work on on the first day that's how i see it anyway and so who i think it, it does feel like you know, grabbing the, that first day, first test is going to be really important uh, for, for both these sides because because of the way they play, because of the sort of strong narratives of the two sides. Um, what probably happens is they'll play for three and a half days and then it will rain and the game will be called off. Don't be like that. The thunderstorms will come down. I mean, you know, that's another fact. It's an amazing weather, isn't it? Um, but there are some. There is a bit of talk, a possibility of the weather breaking uh, towards the, the end of the weekend, start of next week. So there's a, you know, there's another factor to throw into the mix. Yeah. I, so let, let's look at some stats for a minute. We'll hear from Matthew Hayden what he thinks shortly, by the way. But um, I'll just look at some stats here. Look, I love England's approach to cricket, you know, to test cricket over the last year. It's been absolutely brilliant. 11 wins in 13 matches. But just look at the stats for a minute. Just look at the Ashes stats of the respective players in, in each side. Uh, for instance, the Australian team has 20 Ashes hundreds amongst the, the players that they will play, that they'll select. I know we don't know yet which of the seams they'll select, but from the batters, there are 20 Ashes hundreds. And three of those batters average over 42, 
That's Travis Head. This is in the ashes. Travis Head averaging 42. Labashain averaging 45. And you know, Steve Smith, of course, averaging nearly 60 in the ashes. And then they've got their openers who average 36 and 38. So they've got five players there who average around 40 or above. For England, no player averages over 40 in the Ashes. Obviously, they've got Joe Root, whose test average is around 50. But in the Ashes, his average is only 38. And the rest are 34 or below in the Ashes itself. Stokes averages 34, and then there's a couple in the 20s. And obviously, Harry Brook averages 80 in test cricket, but he's never played in the Ashes, and his stats are a bit skewed. And England have only eight Ashes test hundreds. Whereas, as I said, Australia have 20. Then if you look at the bowling, in the Ashes, Stark, Cummins, Hazelwood, Boland, all average 27 or under with the ball. And Boland averages 9.55, which is again skewed because he hasn't played much, a bit like uh, Harry Brook. England's bowling averages in the Ashes, only one averages under 27. That's Ollie Robinson, uh, an Ashes average of 25. But the other bowlers, the other seam bowlers, averaging over 29, Broad 29, Anderson 33 and Wood 31 in the Ashes. So England have only one bowler averaging under 27 and Australia have four averaging under 27. So that just sounds like you know, there's a lot more strength in both batting and bowling for Australia in the Ashes. And just one other little stat, Moen in the Ashes... 476 runs, average 20, and 25 wickets, average 64. So, not great credentials. Let's not bother playing it then, Yoz. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We've well, given this great big build-up. The, the one, and I mean, you can talk all sorts of things about stats as well, and those are, those stats are relevant, I think. But one thing is, of course, is that, Aust- that those stats are a lot based on what England have done in Australia. They've been very unsuccessful. They're not very good in Australia. Whatever it is, the conditions, so many factors that go into it, England have been hopeless in Australia and they've been blown away. But in, at home, you know, they've, they've done much better, haven't they? So there's that aspect. Of, uh, and of course, the other key stat is Australia haven't won here for 22 years. So they got close last time. They probably should have won the series last time. And they'll think, yeah, we're going to put this right this time. You know, we're not going to make the mistakes that we made the last time round. But, but, but it's a very different sort of England team. It's a very different sort of a, approach uh, from England that they're going to come up against. And, you know, everybody knows. I think everybody knows and perhaps some fear that it could just fall really flat for England. It could be something like 1989 all over again. And I, I sense... Uh, you know, there are a few Australians out there who are thinking that. I, I, I think the Australian view, if I could sum it up, um, is, OK, what England are doing is nice and exciting. It's great for test cricket, but, mate, it won't work against us. And I think that is, that is the thing, isn't it? There's, a, there's a, a bit of that around, you know. Yeah, try, try doing that against us. Mitchell Stark, yeah, good, good luck with playing baseball when you're five for 50. You know, it's that, it's that sort of attitude. And that is what is going to be tested. Yeah, you know what? What are England going to do if they if they have a South Africa at Lords situation? You know, when they're beaten by an innings, say, uh, early, if they are early on in the series, that that's going to be the the, the fascinating thing. And it, well, you know, are we going to get there? Yeah. Well, if we want to hear another Australian view after the break, we'll hear what Matthew Hayden thinks about the series. <laughs> 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, we've heard Matthew Hayden talking about the past. I caught up with him the day after Australia won the World Test Championship final at the Oval. And I asked him what impact he thought that would have on Australia's prospects for the Ashes. I mean, had Australia lost that game and and there were certain elements that were heavily exposed, um, that probably wouldn't have helped uh, Australian cricket team's cause. But the fact is that they they won handsomely. Um, you know, there was a few things that were, were, were revealed, like Travis Head, who got man of the match, for example, you know, has now been seen to have a problem with the short pitch ball. I mean, he will be exposed. You'll do pieces, Yozza, in analytics on, on exactly that point. You know, Wood coming around the wicket and peppering him or over the wicket and peppering him. That's going to happen. But that's how you also improve as a cricketer. I mean, and he is a very, very good cricketer. Um, but look, winning creates momentum and momentum in life and sport is everything. <laughs> and it's very hard to lose it when you've got it. And it's almost impossible to get when you don't have it. So, and it doesn't take much. You know, you think back to the 2005 series with that champion side that I was privileged enough to play with. McGrath slipping on that ball at, at Edgbaston was the difference between getting behind the eight ball and, and losing momentum and then losing the, the, the test match series and not. That's just one member, you know. So it's a fickle game professional sport and so too is confidence and momentum, two key elements. How do you see it going? And, um, you know, first test, would you pick, would you pick Hazelwood? Would you leave out Stark? I mean, you're going to say, look at the pitch, but what's your hunch? I would leave out Stark and I would play Hazelwood, Scotty Boland and Pat Cummins and obviously Nathan Lyon. Green, and I said this during the week, he unlocks the three quicks and he provides some sanctuary for Nathan Lyon in the first two or three days. Um, regardless of what the conditions are going to be. There's no way that England's going to play us on green steamers. I just don't think that's going to happen. They will lose heavily if they do that, put it that way, because of the class of what you've seen over the last few days. And I don't think that we're overly scared, actually, being largely back foot techniques, a rarity, actually, in Australian cricket, to let the ball come. I mean, they would have done my head in because I would have been going chasing them like I did trying to launch them off the front foot and, and do it that way. But our blokes are very different to that. They're, they're a very conservative side first before they're an attacking side. Davey Warney might be the only, you know, um, difference in that batting six. He is an offensive player. And head, I suppose. And when he becomes head is, a head, is, isn't he? Travis yeah, head. He, yes, he is, but he's, but he's also a middle order player. So, you know, he, he, he has the scaffolding around him to be able to support him to do that because when you look at the last test match cycle, with the exception of Davey Warner, you had you had three other players 
Usman Kawaja, Smith, who's freakish, and Labashane, all scoring five uh, uh, over um, 12 on it runs in the cycle. They had huge seasons. And Head was also the fourth one of those, but he was nurtured and protected um, because of those seasons. I mean, they're three key players for Australia. Who, who do you respect from England or who do the Aussies respect from England the most, do you think, as, as a player? Well, I think Joe Root is, is our Steve Smith, isn't he? Um, yeah, look, we're curious to see how you're going to be playing. I think the whole world's curious to see whether Baz McCullum's technique is going to stand up against world-class bowling attacks. And, you know, Australia love to be front runners. I mean, you saw what happened when, when India got on the back foot against Australia. Very hard to win against Australia when they've got their nose in, you know, up, up with the wind and, and, and flying. Um, when they have to be defensive, we're horrible. We're horrible. We just don't like playing from behind in anything in life. And maybe that's because we're just so small and so insignificant, but I think <laughs> it's just our mindset. We just love to punch above our weight and we love that we're good street fighters, you know, so turn your back on us at, at your peril, really. Um, but if we get in front, we're, we're, we're very hard to stop. So you say that, you know, confronting you, which I mean, it was a bit like the 2005 Ashes, wasn't it? I mean, England did square up to you pretty, pretty effectively. They did. And that's they, why they, they did a great yeah, they did a great job, and they also they didn't have to fake their chemistry. Like our batting unit, that was incredibly strong. Um, we knew that we had a force in Jones, Harmison, Hoggard, and Flintoff. They were good mates. They didn't like to be prized apart, and they knew that they'd been on several, you know, hammerings in the past where they'd been picked apart and isolated. And for various reasons, cultural reasons, um, county reasons. I mean, there's politics in English cricket. Um, it's as simple as that. You know, there's lots of different clubhouses and, and, and associations. There's six in Australia. And those six come together because there's a baggy green that sits at the end of a, a good, you know, performance. And it, and it matters. And it's a very linear uh, process. You know, the singers of the team song. Everyone knows them in the culture. It started with the great Bacchus Marsh. You know, then it's just boom, 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 down the Ricky Ponting and Justin Langer, you know, Mike Hussey, now Nathan Lyon. Like, it all matters, that stuff. But it's very linear. Whereas when we play England, we know that we can start to come hard at certain players, pick them apart, and before you know it, expose that real um, underbelly of English cricket. Give me a scoreline for the Ashes. 3-1, one, one draw somewhere because it's going to piss down at some point. We can't have all this glorious weather like we've had. Look at it. It's unbelievable. I, I think Australia should, if they play well, win heavily. Should. So Matthew Hayden giving Australia a quite a decisive 3-1. You went 3-1 the other day. I went uh, a tentative 3-2 Australia. But, I mean, goodness knows, it feels like a pretty unpredictable series. I noticed Glenn McGrath, obviously Glenn's gone 5-0 again. Uh, Jim Maxwell, he's totally written off Baz Ball. You know, uh, uh, the Australian commentator, I saw his uh, prediction on the on the BBC Sport website. I think he's gone something like 4-0 or 4-1, something like that. You know, he, and, and that's that. I suppose I've been spending too much time with Jim in the last sort of week or so. It's that feeling in Australia. No, it won't work. That, you know, as I was mentioning before the break, it won't work against us. And that's the 
line that that Jim has taken. Uh, Tim Payne, something quite similar as well. I, I saw some quotes from him this morning in Australian media saying, yeah, we like the way England are playing, but, you know, it's the same England team that came to Australia last time. We drubbed them, uh, and, and the time before as well. Uh, you know, good luck against our bowling attack. And, you know, th- th- there's a, that's a, it's a reasonable argument. It's a quality bowling attack. And when England came up against a quality bowling attack last summer in South Africa, they were done twice at Lords. And also there was you know, one other match in which they struggled as well. There was a slightly unusual circumstances, wasn't it? The, ma- the match at the Oval where England didn't score a lot of runs, but they won the game comfortably in the end because it was a much shortened game. So they had to go for it. So that's a bit of an outlier, uh, really. But, you know, they succeeded against a good India attack at Edgbaston, but I, I think there's nothing, there, there isn't anything in world cricket quite like this Australian bowling attack, and that is going to be uh, the challenge. I think that's a good point, actually, that I just wanted to sort of uh, develop a little bit, because if you look at the four-pronged Australian seam attack, whether it's Hazelwood or whether it's Boland, they all bowl at round about 86 miles an hour plus. And even uh, Cameron Green, and we haven't mentioned Cameron Green, very important key figure because definitely, he sort definitely. of gives them that uh, that all round capability. And he's a he's a decent bowler in his own right, and he can get the the rate the, the speed gun up to close to ninety miles an hour. But also, the I was quite surprised by Scott Boland's pace at the Oval actually in the World Test Championship final. He was not nudging 87, 88 miles an hour consistently around about. 85, 86 on average, but often a little bit above that. And they've obviously got Stark and Cummins who are 88 uh, and above. And England haven't got with it, now that they haven't picked uh, Mark Wood, they've got no one above about 84 miles an hour. And although that sounds like a small difference, I think it's a significant difference. And England's challenge especially if the pitch is flat, he's going to be taking 20 wickets. Yeah. They're, they're batting. We know about their batting. It bats deep. It bats excitingly. You know, it will be absolutely box office. But they're bowling. They've got to take 20 wickets. And those Australian batsmen don't give their wickets up easily, as we know. At the, England haven't got anyone without Mark Wood to ruffle up Travis Head, for instance, who is one of the top three ranked batters in the world now. In fact, in Australia have the top three. Labuschagne, Smith and Travis Head are the top three ranked batters in the world on the ICC rankings. Travis Head, to me, looks fallible to the short ball directed into the body, but only at a high pace. And England haven't got any of that in this test match. No, well, I mean, it's, it's the age-old issue with cricket, isn't it? You can't pick 12. I mean, England would have loved to have Mark Wood in their side. They'd love to have that extra pace, but where does he fit in? If you think the Broad's got to play, if you think that Anderson's got to play, Robinson, for me, has to play. It's been dry, so, you know, Moen Alley, yeah, they've got to play Moen Alley. I mean, the unknown, and it comes back to it, and we haven't talked about it on this podcast, is Ben Stokes. I mean, Ben Stokes can get it around the year olds. He can mm. make you do things... You know, get you out of your comfort zone. Mm. But how much is he going to be able to bowl? How much is he going to be able to you know, bowl with, with sustained pace? But I imagine that you know he will see himself as in that sort of slight enforcer role. That you know he will uh, you know, try to bomb uh, Travis Head if, if it comes down to it. But but like but like you, Yoz, you know it does seem quite a sort of it's a skill it's a skillful sort of low pace ish England bowling mm. attack. And and with, but with yeah without that extra pace and but you, you, well, I, I think they need help in the pitch well this Whereas is interesting i don't think australia do well here's an interesting thing matthew hayden 
Well, did you notice what Matthew Hayden said? He's the first person I've heard uh, say that. He said England mustn't play on green seamers, whereas some, someone like Tim Payne said England should. I, I, he said, I'm surprised they're playing on flat pitches because that's like, you know, that, those are the sort of pitches we play on in Australia, traditional, although the last Ashes series wasn't quite like that. So Matthew Hayes is the first person I've heard say that. England mustn't play on green seamers. Most yeah, well, people, I think he's got that wrong. I, do, I, do I, I wouldn't say that to his face because he's about six foot eight, but <laughs> I do think he's got it wrong. No, and I, well, his I, point I, was yours. His point was that if England play on green seamers, Australia will. You know, they, they've got such a good bowling attack that they will, you know, knock England off. But no, I, don't I know. disagree. I, I think mm. that the, England's bowlers are specialists on when mm. there's a little bit of movement. Whereas someone like Stark, for instance, doesn't bowl very well when it's swinging around. He, he's a better bowler in in sort of drier conditions where he can reverse swing the ball. I mean, obviously Cummins, Hazelwood, very good bowlers, Boland, excellent. But I still would back England in green conditions a bit more than I would the Australians, yeah. actually. So, so here's something, England's selection then, yours. I know we, we talked about this, we've talk, been talking about it for a couple of weeks, that you were saying they should play wood. Who, if, if, do you accept they need a spinner because it's been so dry? And so they've got to play Moen Alley, or you, you you would have gone in with four pace bowlers. I, I would have gone in with. I, I think I would. Yeah, I would have gone in with four pace bowlers. Joe Root can bowl some spin. I know he's not anything like as good as Nathan Lyon, and we, you know we haven't mentioned Nathan Lyon by the way, who you know has nearly five hundred Test wickets, and in the Ashes he averages twenty nine. He's got one hundred and one mm. Ashes wickets at twenty nine, which is impressive, isn't it, for a for a spinner? Given he's played quite a lot of those Tests in England, so. I, I just, I don't think England have a spinner good enough to pick at the moment. And I would have therefore, unless it's going to be turn, you know, absolutely rag square, I would be going with the, the best bowlers we've got, which are seamers. Mm. But, you know, what do I know? Well, well, you've seen a lot of cricket over the years. And, and bench, do you know, bench. I was actually thinking about that. I, I was trying to count up the number of Ashes series I've covered. <laughs> and I think it's 16 now. And I've, my first Ashes was actually 1968, not obviously as a covering, but I watched the 1968 Ashes series in, in England. So God knows, that. how long ago is that? Oh, I mean, it's 55 years ago. It's alarming, isn't it? Yeah. So, wow. You know, it just shows how long the damn thing's been going, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and it, it's, you know, it's all about, you know, you've got to make a choice. The thing is, Brendan McCullough and Ben Stokes, they, you know, they've got to make a choice. Of course, they'd love to have the pace of Mark Wood in the side, but, the, you know, there's a, there's a strong case for Broad. There's a strong case for Anderson. There's a strong case for Robinson. There's a strong case for, for Moen Ali. And perhaps those four, well, they feel, obviously, is, is they, they've got stronger cases than Mark Wood, who hasn't bowled very much as well. That's the other thing. He hasn't, you know, he's, he's had very mm. little bowling. True. But, yeah, there, yeah, there might be a time at Edgbaston where you, you think... Oh, if only they could throw the ball to Mark Wood now. But and I'm sure Wood will play his part in the series as long as he stays fit. You, you know, you can see him playing second Test match, whatever. Uh, but there is a yeah. there is a gap of a week between the first and the second Test match, so there is time to you know, recover and 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 go again. Uh, although the matches are back to back, there is, it's not like there's th it's, it, between some of the games there's a, you know, a longer gap, and there is between the the first and and second Test match. Uh, anyway, that, so anyway, say, I mean we. To, to sum up, um, I, I thought we'd um, actually at the end of the Matthew Hayden interview the other day, I got our members of the World's Best Cricket Club to give us their predictions for the series. And there's a number of members stayed on to give us their predictions. These guys are all and girls are all people who study the game and watch a lot of county cricket, a lot of test cricket around the world, actually, not just in England. And overall, only two of the 15 
who who looked at it and give us gave us their predictions gave a, a possible victory to England and the rest all said Australia and when I counted up the test wins that they predicted for each team it came to 38 Australia and 20 England so basically double uh, Australia winning the test matches in this series it is by the way the 74th Ashes series and Australia have won 34 and England have won 32 so it is pretty close yeah there's the Edgbaston crowd factor as well I saw Harry Brooks saying some of his mates are coming and they'll be sitting in the Hollis stand and, and having a few drinks probably as indeed will quite a lot of other people so there's that it's that I mean, Australia managed to quell Edgbaston, didn't they? Fortress Ed- Edgbaston last time round didn't mean they went on to win the series. But there is something special about uh, Edgbaston. OK, there's so many tantalising aspects. I, th- I think what we want, we don't want a one-sided, damp squib, anticlimax of a series. We want something exciting that's you know, cut and thrust, that's going to keep the whole thing right at centre stage for, for the whole uh, five weeks. I think that's what we want most of all. That's what I want uh, most of all. And we'll we'll see how it, it pans out. Yeah, we will. Uh, by the way, if you want to give us your predictions, we'd love to hear them. If you give us your predictions at The Analyst Pod on Twitter, at The Analyst Pod, just give us your scoreline and, you know, we'll, we'll keep them. We'll store them away and see which ones of you got it right. Maybe we'll even give the person who got it right a prize. You never know. Maybe it, it might even be a, a bottle of the Chapel Down sparkling wine. And just also one little other thing, the Legends of the Ashes series, which I wrote and which Stephen Fry narrates, is out today. It's on the Global Player platform, but actually you can get it on any podcast network as well. Legends of the Ashes is a 10-part original series featuring all the great names that are still alive from the last 25 years of the Ashes, looking back at various series and various moments and various characters. So look at that. If you haven't got enough Ashes already, there's another 10-part series for you to listen to on your journeys in the next few days. And of course, we'll be there tomorrow at Edgebaston to give you a review of the first day's play and all the day's play of this Ashes series on this podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Let's hope it lives up to all the expectation and hype. Goodbye for now. Podcast Network.